Hypothetical scenario, you're away at a trade show or a conference with some colleagues from work. You're out at dinner, light conversation, and one of them says something along the lines of, I know faith is a big deal to you. Why? (laughs) Can you explain more, tell, tell me more about it? That hypothetical is an increasingly rare one in our culture, but when, if you get like that wide open door of opportunity to speak about Christianity, um, how many of us would choose as our go-to in that moment resurrection and new creation? I mean, I, I doubt that that's where most of us would go. The, the passage we're about to read in Acts chapter 13 is Paul's first sermon that he ever recorded, that's ever been recorded And it provides a snapshot of how he communicates the message of of Christianity to his fellow Jews. In a few weeks' time, he's going to, you know, preach basically to a group of people who have no exposure to the Bible, to religion. And so he'll communicate to them somewhat differently. But in in both of the instances, he goes for the same thing. He goes for resurrection, new creation. Um, The core of his message doesn't change. As I said a few weeks ago, I think right after Easter, I just don't think we focus enough on the resurrection. We've got a lot of songs in our Christian repertoire that focus on the cross of Christ and the forgiveness of our sins. Um, you know, died on the cross for it, but not nearly enough that sing of the empty tomb and new creation, new heavens and new earth. You know, similarly, like what's the defining icon, the defining image of Christianity? It's the thing right above my head right there. It's a cross. And so what is the defining icon that communicates empty tomb, new creation in in Christianity? The answer is we don't have one. We really don't have one. And so it's a topic I I don't make any apologies for coming back to. I've I've preached several resurrection sermons, and and I, I hope I get many more opportunities to preach on it. I guess I will apologize because... The passage, I had a hard time writing a sermon for this particular passage. Uh, nothing seemed to, to click, so, you know, go easy on your, your assessment of the sermon. All I could come up with were a couple of implications, and I, I think, I hope that they're helpful implications of how resurrection sort of impinges on our cultural moment, and we'll see if they are indeed helpful. So Acts 13, verse 26 uh, one other quick note before I read. We typically divide the Apostle Paul's ministry timeline into three, we call them missionary journeys. So Acts 13 is missionary journey, journey number one. He is in the city of Antioch, which is a different Antioch than the Antioch we spoke about last week. He's in Antioch. Uh, and basically on his first missionary journey, the way that he would go about, he'd go into a city to major cities, and they, he'd stay there not very long, just long enough to get a Christian community started. Then um, on his second and third missionary journeys, they end up being a little bit less journeys and more extended outings. In one of those, he spends a year and a half in the city of Corinth. The other, he spends three years in the city of Ephesus. So we basically have one missionary journey and two missionary extended stays. <laughs> but whenever he went into a city, the first place he would hit was what? It, the, the synagogue. It wasn't the bar. It wasn't the tavern. It was a synagogue. Uh, he was considered a visiting rabbi, and he was normally given an opportunity to comment on the Torah reading on, on the Sabbath. So this Acts 13 sermon, synagogue sermon, right after the reading of Torah, 
He talks about how God was patient with the children of Israel during all their times in the wilderness. Then he moves from wilderness wanderings to King David, high point of of Jewish history. And then from King David, he always makes the transition to Jesus. And here's what we read, 26. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing ethnos, that is Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers, they did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that uh, was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, They are now his witnesses to our people. And that's what we call the apostles. So we tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus, as it is written. Here he quotes Psalm 2, the second psalm. uh, You are my son. Today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, here he quotes Isaiah 55, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere, and here he quotes Psalm 16, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Um, Let's pray one more time. Uh, Lord, Lord, open our eyes in wonder and fill us with a resurrection hope that we might be people who impart that hope uh, to others. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Yeah, very few people today will ask you the question, like, tell me more <laughs> about your faith. I'm kind of curious about it. Uh, the, the operating philosophy we have is, is kind of like, if it works for you, great. If religion, if religion is good for you, then, you know, more power to you. It's, you know, for me, not so much. Like, you know, we, we kind of think of faith as a matter of, in our culture today of like aesthetic preference, like what do you prefer, seafood or steak? Um, What is your aesthetic preference? And that's really unfortunate because everybody, everybody has foundational beliefs, um, beliefs about like why are we are here? What's the best way for us to live as humans? Uh, How should we organize our common life together? Like everybody has some form of those beliefs, uh, unstated assumptions behind them, but you know, we just don't talk about that very much, or we find it impolite to speak openly about those things. Suffice to say that spiritual conversations were just a little bit easier, probably for Paul to have with his neighbors than it is for us. I mean, all he had to do was walk into a synagogue, and he had a captive audience. Uh, we have to do a little bit more work. I mean, one, we have to build enough relational capital with other people that we can tell, talk about ultimate things. And then secondly, we have to learn, we have to learn how to connect the dots between the yearnings of their hearts and it, its ultimate fulfillment and expression in the Christian good news. 
So getting there, uh, getting people to care about God and to consider that he might matter and then ultimately getting them to Jesus, yeah, it's a tall task. But I think one of the ways that we can can tackle it is simply through resurrection. Like, whenever Paul went to a new, new place, he was animated by this belief in the resurrection. And John threw up this funny one for us. <laughs> like, that was Paul's bumper sticker right there as he's do, going through his missionary journeys. I heart resurrection because all of the sermons in the book of Acts focus on Jesus coming back to life. That was the center of the Christian message. The reason, I know it's a little corny, but the reason I heart resurrection is significant, it was so significant for Paul that it led to did you notice very creative way of reading the Bible, of reading the Old Testament? For instance, he quotes Psalm 2, this quotation from the second Psalm, that, Behold, you are my son. Today, today I have become your father. When did that happen? We talked earlier, weeks, months ago, about how Psalm 2 was originally a coronation psalm for the king of Israel. When did today I become your father? Paul says that today is Easter morning, and that's when it happened. You know, he likens the resurrection of Jesus to the Father giving his Son second life on Easter morning. Then he, another example of this would be Psalm 16, the quote, that you will not let your Holy One see corruption, that is, to see corruption in Sheol, in the grave. Like, when did that happen? And his answer is, that happened again on Easter. The Father made sure his Son wouldn't rot in the belly of Sheol. Uh, suffice to say, like, if you and I are reading those Psalms, we don't see that. Dude. We don't make those connections. Like, you only make those connections if you have the resurrection, like, stamped on your eyelids. And that's what I see in this man. Um, he, he's, he, he loves resurrection. He finds it everywhere. He finds it on every page of scripture, just like if we had the eyes to see it, it's, it's written in every cactus bloom. Um, that is outside right now. Uh, The resurrection, it just popped for him, and it did for the early church. We need to get back to that. The man that is pictured here is one of the most famous actors of the 19th century, 19th century England. His name is William Charles McGrady. He was a British stage actor, a very huge celebrity in England, and the story I came across, stories told that one day he and a preacher are having a conversation, And the preacher says to him, Mr. McGrady, can you explain something to me? Like, every evening you appear on stage before these massive crowds, night after night, they come to hear you perform. And me, on the other hand, and you're like, I'm preaching the essential, unchangeable truth of God, and I'm hardly getting any crowd at all. Why is that? You got the big crowds, I don't have any. And McGrady reportedly answered him, Sir, I present my fiction as though it were truth, and you present your truth as though it were fiction. What does he mean by that? He means that even though his story he was presenting wasn't real, it felt real. It felt captivating. It captivated the imagination of the audience, whereas, you know, presumably the the minister's message of forgiveness of sins, you know, it, it may be real, but it didn't feel that way. It was just so blah. And as I said earlier, I think that's one of the challenges in our cultural moment is is we have some wonderful truths that we can make sound like just a, a cold, wet blanket <laughs> that, that are not animating, not animating in the least. When you stop to think about it, the message of new creation is 
so, so good. It is such a good message. It is so much more hopeful. It is so much more um, beautiful. It's, it's a far greater explanation of reality compared to like the alternative explanations out there. And it's incumbent upon us as Christians in this moment to just discover how to make it pop again, um, how to make it pop in the hearts of other people. It's never going to do that, though, if it doesn't first pop in your hearts. Um, so here are like, two ways, a couple of areas that I think it, it maybe it can happen. Number one, resurrection in relationships. Ah, Go back to your comparative religions class in high school or college. You probably know that many Hindus and Buddhists believe that when, when we die, we're like a drop of water going into the ocean. Our, our souls lose all their individuality, and they vanish into the universal collective. And that's one of the reasons why you know, many Hindus and many Buddhists historically have practiced cremation, because like, there's no lasting significance to the human body, because there's no lasting significance to one's individuality. And so you just you know, turn the, the, indi- the individual human body to ashes because, because it is subsumed in the universal collective. Well, I was listening to an album this week by an indie pop artist named Dennis Lloyd. I don't know if any of you have listened to Dennis Lloyd before. He was a new artist for me. And I, I heard a song come up in a playlist that I'd never heard before. In the song, he samples a TED Talk that was given by a prominent psychologist on human relationships. And it's one of those TED Talks where you can tell he's talking to maybe primarily maybe a Gen Z millennial audience. He's, he's talking about, you know, the importance of relationships to, to his audience. And John's got the cue for me right here. Yeah, it's not going to be, do, did I have a better phone? Did I, you know, did I get more sleep? I, I, we say yes, yes, yes to that, that relationships. But if in the future our souls just vanish into a, a collective ocean and we lose all individuality, like what that means is there are no future relationships and there is no future love because love requires persons and love requires individuality. We have, in, in our cultural moment, in secularism, like, when you die, you, that's it. You just, that, that's all there is. You're like a candle that's snuffed out. Your body goes into the grave. It becomes fertilizer. And yet we have people all the time saying, well, you don't need to be afraid of death. You don't have to be afraid of death. But, but, but when you, if when you die, you just don't exist, you're telling me, you're telling me that, that love doesn't last forever. That love is gone forever. Like, why wouldn't I be afraid of that? See, the early Christians, what they could say, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what they could say to their friends was, we know the future, 
and the future is not darkness, and the future is not nothingness, and you don't become a faceless drop of water in an ocean. The future is personal. And and in that way, I think we can say the same thing to our neighbors. Like, resurrection, it answers the yearnings of, in this case, the Gen Z heart. Because all of us, we, we want... We want a love that lasts and relationships that last. What we have to do for people is help them also just realize that the dominant philosophy of the world today, it will not give you that. Secularism won't give you that. Hinduism won't give you that. Buddhism won't give you that. It's only in the Christian story that we get a life and a love that is without parting. Um, that is what the present story does not provide. And so I know I'm not very good at it. I'm trying to work at it. But to learn how to key into the longings of another human heart and help them to see like what they are yearning for is good. And like they should be yearning for that. But what they're living for right now doesn't provide it. You know, the, their worldview is actually selling them, selling them short and the dots don't connect. Like that's one of the things that we, we really need to do. So number one is... Simply resurrection and relationships. And number two, and I only have two today, is resurrection and depression. Because obviously we've experienced unprecedented rates of anxiety and depression, especially in youth and uh, young adults. Um, We probably haven't—we've met plenty of people who would say that they're in some of the darkest— deepest parts of their life right now. Um, And I think I've told you before, like I've struggled with clinical depression for many years. It's gotten a whole lot better since I moved back to Arizona and get to enjoy all of the the sunshine. But one of the things I found about depression and my own depression that stands out, depression usually brings with it an alarming confidence about future darkness. There it is. It usually brings with it an alarming confidence about future darkness. To be depressed is to be certain that how you feel right now is how you will always feel. There, there's no hope of, of one day feeling well or feeling hopeful. It's like you look into the future and you say, my future is certainly going to be bleak because, you know, that's how it feels. Well, in the Christian story, nobody has... Can, can have that degree of certainty um, and confidence about a dark future. I, I get it. Like, when we're depressed, it feels that way. The, the horizon looks totally gray and grim, but ultimately, the depressed person, and I'm speaking to myself, is giving themselves far too much credit in their ability to look forward and to predict, uh, this is how things are going to go. You can never know for certain that your future is going to, to bleak, be bleak. In fact, if the story that God is writing is a story of resurrection, that always, always comes with the possibility uh, of fresh light. There's a quote by Mark Twain that I came across. He said, quote, it, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. <laughs> You know, you know for certain that your future is bleak when you're depressed. Well, may, maybe, maybe, friend, that just ain't so. <laughs> That's what we have to tell ourselves. You may have read in high school and college uh, the, the ever-so-dark poem by Edgar Allan Poe called The Raven. Um, 
It's the story of a man who has lost his love. Her name is Leonore. He's broken up with this woman, and he doesn't know if he's ever going to be able to get her back. And there's a a word that keeps being um, part of the refrain that this raven whom the man talks to, he'll ask the raven a question, and the raven will reply back with a single word over and over again. It's almost every one of his questions. You know what the word is? Nevermore. The the raven cries, uh, cause nevermore. And what Poe is saying in his in a pithy, deep, uh, deep and dark kind of way is that nothing can change about the man's situation. I mean, that's what it feels like in this life. Uh, when you lose something that you love, when, when your youth is gone, it feels, it feels irreversible. And, and the raven cr- cause, nevermore. Um, when your health is gone, that feels irreversible, nevermore. When, when everything is going wrong in your life and, and you feel like you're never going to get whatever it is that you, got, you lost, it's never going to come back to you. It's just nevermore, nevermore. The dark irreversibility of life. That's what depression tells us again and again, nevermore. But in the resurrection of Jesus, God replies, you have no idea what I'm capable of. No idea um, what, what I can do. What I try and do in, in my depressive episodes is just is envision Jesus Christ walking out of that tomb on Easter Sunday and realizing that resurrection is the reversal of irreversibility. It's the reversal of, of the nevermore. You know, I found that really comforting that during a depressive episodes, when my mind is just ravenous and it's just realizing that I can't see the future clearly, um, that I'm too fallible and I'm too small, but there is a God who's writing a bigger story, and that story is a story of light, of love, of hope, of, of future hope in peace, and it's the reversal of irreversibility. Finally, friends, I'll just go back to verses 38 and 39. Paul, uh, he concludes his sermon in this way. I'll do the same. Therefore, my friends, uh, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set set free from uh, every sin. Isn't that a powerful statement? If you believe, you're set free of every sin, and you achieve a justification that you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. It's like when you see Jesus walking out of the tomb, um, you realize that you're loved, you're free, and he did it. And it's in that way that I think we can like rub Christian hope in- into our sorrows and into our anger, uh, into our fragility. It's like you, you know how you can rub salt into meat and you tenderize it and you make it tasty that way? You, you rub Christian hope into you, even your depression, right? Jesus is alive Jesus is alive, you say, and that make, makes hope possible. Jesus is alive, and that infuses tomorrow with new possibilities. Jesus is alive, so if there's anything wonderful and great in this present world, it's only an echo or a foretaste of what will be present in infinitely greater depths in the new creation. And that's what you, you try. You just try to work in again and it. And again, now, I don't want to imply that if you just do that, it's going to magically cure uh, your depression and your sorrows, because if you're anything like me, um, information tends to bounce off of a depressed mind. But if you just keep coming back to it again and again, 
I don't know. I think eventually, eventually it pops. It's those kinds of words that God is speaking to us in the gospel. I mean, the gospel is, is resurrection goodness. And the words of resurrection, I think they're nourishing, they're constructive, they're timely and grace-giving. And if those are the words that we can learn to speak to ourselves increasingly, um, they'll find their way out in conversations with our neighbors. Amen.